Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Piki mai kake mai and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance TNA. Later on, we continue our focus on earthquakes with a look at disaster law. But first up, Ralph Pallisland is an ornithologist. His interest in birds and other natural history matters is an all-consuming passion. He used to be a scientist for the Department of Conservation and his job took him to far-flung parts of the country. These days, he does research a little closer to home, in the backyard of a retired farm on the south side of Polaris Inlet in the Marlborough Sounds. Twice a day, he heads out to do a census of the local weka. Who's this noisy thing over here? That's a juvenile that's fledged recently, and he's begging for food. Yeah, we won't feed it. Encourage it to learn to feed itself and to disperse and establish a territory somewhere else. So what have you got there to feed your weka, Ralph? We've got some feral goat meat and um, moist bread. Delicious. (laughs) God, there's weka everywhere, Ralph. Weka Central. This is E4, Sunshine. So he and E5, Deborah, have got a single chick. And it's about half grown. So how many weka on your property, do you think? Well, we've got ten pairs that we monitor uh, on a twice-daily basis. And, um, you know, there's extras, such as juveniles and shorties that haven't got a territory that, you know, know they can get a free feed. Um, so probably 30 birds. Yeah. So this is the morning round? Yep. And is this how it proceeds? You just walk slowly round and the weka come out to see you? Yeah, or we call them if they're not obvious. Yep. So we're recording this just before Christmas, so obviously some chicks have fledged. Do they just have one clutch a year? Two, sometimes three. And typically two chicks, sometimes one, exceptionally three or more. But they they can lay up to five eggs, so we have had a brood of five chicks. That'll take a bit of feeding. Yeah, yeah. Now the funny thing is, they can recognise quality of food. So... Sometimes females, when they're about to lay, they'll refuse to eat bread, but they will will eat meat. And in this situation, they'll take the bread to the chick and feed it. But if you give them some meat, they get really hyper. They call and encourage the chick to come and be fed. It's really fascinating. So, yeah, they they can know the difference between meat and and bread. (laughs) So how long have you been studying the weka here? Um, Started in 2010 and probably started before that. Um, Mary's parents lived here, and so we were visiting, and I began banding weka um, a few years beforehand. So when you started, how many weka pairs did you have here? As far as we can tell, we had just four. So this twice-daily 
circuit of handing out a little bit of food so that they would come to us and we could see them, um, recognise who, who is who, um, seems to have encouraged a greater density of weka. So how much area does a weka need in terms of a territory, a home range? Typically, probably a minimum of one, but up to five hectares. Where do weka sit in the bird world? Who are they related to? They're a rail, so they're related to um, Pukeko and Takahe, banded rail. What kind of weka is it? Because there's different kinds, aren't there? Yeah, this is the western weka, and yeah, there are three others. So there's um, North Island weka, Buff weka, which is sort of the Canterbury but no longer there, present mainly on, on Chatham Islands, and Stuart Island weka. But actually, you can't tell them apart from the bones. Um, so the, the latest research using DNA genetics has revealed that there's just two types of weka, North Island and South Island weka. And Marlborough Sounds is a good hotspot for weka. Yeah, Marlborough Sounds and the West Coast. High rainfall areas and lack of ferrets. These seem to be two of the features that you know, promote weka longevity. There are other problems for them, such as dogs and traps and toxins, but if there's no ferrets and it's good rainfall year-round, then they've got access to soil invertebrates, which is their sort of bread and butter, and that's really good. So who's up by Mary? Schnoz. And what's Schnoz's story? So she and her mate have got a really small territory, probably be half a hectare. So he's accepted that bit of meat, and now he's calling his female, Schnoz. Yeah, yeah. And he'll go off and try and find her and um, see if she's willing to accept it, which she has. Typically, if if the male is keen to re-nest, they uh, feed their females. They find, you know, bits of prey and supply it to them. So there's a possibility that they will re-nest. Um, in a week or so's time. This is Kate, and she and her mate Jimmy may have given up for the season. Did you notice that? Oh, he's spooning the bread, Ralph. <laughs> yeah, and and certainly she did too. He's heard somebody else, so he's gone off to chase off. But she's turned her back on that bread, walking away. So that's a good indication that. She's probably forming eggs and she wants high-quality food. They've got quite a range of vocalisations, Ralph. Yeah. There was that one call there that fits two situations. One, he was trying to um, attract his female to pass on that little bit of meat but also he saw Hefty Lefty encroaching on his territory. So he was saying, you know, you're on my patch, leave immediately. (laughs) So do most of the juveniles stick around after the breeding season or do they slowly disperse away from here? They slowly disperse and we're getting pretty close to emergence of chorus cicadas, which is a real feast for weka. So, you know, there'll be ample food available and they'll... be able to feed themselves, fend for themselves and just um, disperse and 
we won't see m- m- much of them for, um, after that. What would they primarily be eating at the moment? There's another cicada called the uh, variable cicada, um, which that you sometimes see them picking up, but there's a whole variety of invertebrates that they find in the grass, um, even earthworms on the surface, amazingly. You know, they see them during the daytime. Well, we've got birds coming from about three directions at the moment. So this is shut up. That schnoz is one of her progeny, and she's that, they're juveniles, so they're going to try and grab the food off her. It's quite a flurry of activity. Yeah. So they managed to get airborne off the ground, though. Oh, yeah, too right. What words would you use to describe a weka? Yeah, I think curious, but until they know you, um, then they'll be quite wary and, and you know, keep undercover. Um, and particularly if there's a dog or a cat or a falcon, harrier around, they're really wary and they'll keep undercover. Yeah. Kleptomania comes to mind. I have camped in the Marlborough Sounds and you can't leave anything lying around. No. And at one point on one of the islands... Somebody had something stolen and we went looking for it and we found the enormous number of things that they'd stolen off previous campers, including entire things like bottles of olive oil, <laughs> which they dragged off into the bushes. Yeah, yeah, they're amazing. They, they take stuff away, um, investigate it, and then when they can recognise that it's no longer particularly useful to them, then they just abandon it. But it's interesting that they'd taken stuff to the same place. Yes. Yeah. So what does this daily round tell you? tells me what each pair are up to, whether they are courtship feeding prior to egg laying, whether they're incubating, whether they've got young chicks, and, you know, just how many chicks they produce. So it enables me to keep in touch with individuals to know how long they um, survive. How long do they survive? Well, potentially up to 20 years, but I suspect the majority only last for 5 to 10 years. It's really difficult to keep tabs on an individual, particularly males, because as they get old, they're less able to guard their territory, and so they get supplanted by a a younger, uh, more agile male. So the old male has to go off and find a new territory and a mate if they're capable of it, which they sometimes are. But it means that you know that those birds disperse out of my area where I can keep tabs on them. One of the things that I've always been aware of overall was that weka numbers have come and gone quite significantly, and I'm thinking in places like Golden Bay used to be a real stronghold for them. Then they seem to almost disappear from there. Yeah. And but now they're coming back. So yes. what's what happened there? Do you think? Yeah, I, d- I don't know, and it's something that has not happened here in the sounds generally. They've always been here. They might have changed in density to some extent, but nothing that I've really noticed. But we have had a feral cat taking out chicks. And so last season, the first broods got away, but then that cat took out most of the second brood chicks, so there was very little productivity in the latter half of the season. So there are predators that certainly do have an impact, but overall they're... The adults are great survivors. 
So that's Jason and his two juvenile males. I call them juveniles because it, it, to all intents and purposes they're independent, but he will still feed them if I give him some bread. But you see that they're quite diffident about accepting food from him because obviously he's not keen to feed them most of the time and he'll give them a peck. So they rush in and grab it and then rush away again. So really, these juveniles should be independent. We call them snatchers because they really snatch quite vigorously from the male. See, now he's going to get aggressive and perhaps give them a good peck. Now there's been quite a few efforts to return weka to various places to translocate them which mostly don't seem to go very well, the, one of the exceptions being the Chathams, the birds that were moved out to the Chathams have done extraordinarily well out there. Yeah. So but, why do you think these other translocations aren't working? Any thoughts on that? Well, the Chathams is, is a great place for weka. You know, high rainfall area. It's like the sounds in, the, in Fiordland. Um, high rainfall, no ferrets, no stoats. So, you know, almost uh, predator-free. And, of course, once they're put on an island... They can't go home. Weka have an incredible homing instinct. And so um, adult weka that have got a territory, if you pick them up and shift them, the last thing they want to do is, is stay where they are. They want to go back to where their territory is. People have shifted them off islands, like um, Maud Island, onto the mainland nearby, and they've swum back, and that's a distance of several hundred metres. So, yeah, they make every effort to, to get home. And if you translocate them to a place where there are still predator problems or they are prone to drought issues, then, you know, the weka uh, struggle. Yeah. Is that what's happened in Lake Wanaka? Because they introduced some birds there. Yeah. Mainly the predator problems, ferrets, stoats. Yeah. Yeah. Ted and B are incubating, so we've seen Ted, and we haven't seen B because she's on her nest over there. What does a wicker nest look like? On the ground? Yeah, always on the ground, and generally under thick cover, so that they're protected from prying eyes, particularly wicker, other wicker, but but also harriers and such like. But she she won't come off in the morning. I mean, she's they probably changed over early morning at some stage, say just for a guess, you know, four or five a.m. So he'll be off for all the day, and then they'll probably change over again around at dusk. But when I come around in the afternoon, she'll come off and have a quick feed for a minute or two and then dash back to the nest. Is it always the case that the female incubates during the day and the male at night? Yeah, yeah. And it's just as, as well Weka are able to forage at night. So they have a peak of activity in the first two or three hours after um, sunset but then there's not another peak until actually sunrise happens again. Mm. And because they are such effective hunters, they're actually a bit of a conservation dilemma, aren't they? Yeah, if you've got endangered species like you know, lizards, then you don't want wicker running around, you know, hoovering them up at the same time. So, yeah, wicker have been put on islands but have had to be taken off subsequently to protect endangered species. There was some thought that Weka were actually moved around by Māori as a food source. 
Yeah, there's reasonably good evidence of that, and certainly it was recognised that the Maori used WEC for rat control as well as a food source, but not just food, but their feathers were used for cloaks or garments, and also their fat was uh, used. So there's just more than one product that the Maori were were getting from um, Weka. This is Monster. And this is his parents' territory. So, And he knows that, you know, we're the provider of extra food. Now, you say he can use sex them easily? Yeah. Yeah, so males are about 25% larger than females and they have a a larger, thicker leg. Generally, um, we can tell the juveniles by the time they're close to independence what sex they are and Monster is definitely a male. And they're how old when they're independent? Just a few months? Yeah, a couple of months. Hello! This is horrible. What did Horrible do to deserve that name? He supplanted Drac, who was one of our favourites. He's fed his mate, Helen. So you've just given him some meat which is far more desirable. Yes, and so he's calling her to... Pass it on. So she's quite happy about that. So that growling, is that just him reacting to those other birds calling? No, it's him saying, you know, calling his mate or or the chicks, I've got food, here you go. That's his mate. So he can call with his mouth full. <laughs> What's the downside of living with Weka though? Yeah, you've got to fence them out of your veggie garden and any gardens, anywhere where you might want to mulch. Yeah, so most serious veggie gardeners in the sounds have them completely enclosed. And as you say, if you put things down, um, they will run off with it to inspect it and you know, you're likely to lose it for a while, if not permanently. Jandals, um, secateurs, whatever. What does that call mean? I've still got this food here. I'd like to pass it over to you, but you have to come and get it. So that's the morning round and you'll come out again this afternoon? Yes. Yeah, about three o'clock. An ornithologist's job is never done. (laughs) Thanks, Ralph. Ralph Pallisland is an ornithologist and author of the new book, Weka, Opportunist and Battler. You can buy the book online from Real NZ Books and I'll put a link on our webpage rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou au horihori. Hei hōtaka e pānaki te putaio, te tāo me te kōpapa o te ora. I'm Alison Balance and you're with Our Changing World on RNZ. Now, 
It's been a decade since Canterbury experienced several destructive and deadly earthquakes. And over the past few months, we've been taking a look at what we've learned from those events and from subsequent earthquakes. The Quake Corps Centre of Research Excellence was set up to help New Zealand build resilience from such events. It involves experts from a wide range of disciplines, including, and this was a surprise to me, law. To find out more, I'm off to the University of Canterbury to meet John Hopkins and Tony Collins, who are experts in the field of disaster law. When we turn up to events and so on, studying disasters with our science and engineering colleagues, there's often a bit of a surprise (laughs) that there's some lawyers in the room. And the reason for that is I think people misunderstand two things. They misunderstand the nature of law as a concept and they misunderstand the nature of disasters. So in terms of the nature of law, we tend to think of law as judges and uh, courtrooms, maybe parliament and all that sort of stuff. And while that's obviously part of the legal system, the legal system or law is really just the way a society organises itself. That's, that's how it works. So it's about society. If you want the technical term, how society do, does the law jobs. And in our society, we do it, yeah, using parliament and courts and so on. But there are lots of other things, social interactions, social requirements, custom, tikanga, all these things make up law. It's really how society manages itself. Now, disasters are also misunderstood, I think, because people, when they, they think about a disaster, they think about an earthquake or a volcano or a, a, a tsunami or even a health event. But that's not the disaster. The disaster is a social event. The volcano that erupts when there is nobody there and uh, is, is not a disaster, it's an interesting event. Instead, disasters are an interaction between the hazard, if you want to use the technical term, the, the volcanic eruption, maybe the earthquake, the new disease, and what vulnerabilities you have in your society. So let's use Christchurch as an example. We, we built the city on a swamp. That's probably, looking back, not the best idea. We also use certain technologies for building, that are a lot of brick buildings. We also have infrastructure that is, is not resilient to, to seismic events. And because of that, the hazard plus the um, vulnerability, you get a, a disaster. So disasters are all about society. They're all about social collapse or, or social failure. And because law is all about society too, you end up that law is going to be part of that, the, the response, the powers required for responding, how you recover and how you prepare for disaster is all going to be the sort of things that the law is going to be part of as well. In fact, it's at the core of disaster studies. But this approach to disasters is quite new, although it's generally accepted. And that's why disaster law as a subject is relatively novel. So how long has it been around as a subject? I think it's a developing subject that started to come out about 10 years ago and over time as we've had more disasters and more people interested in how law interacts with the disaster and and the effects that it has, it's become much more important. We've got international disaster law experts now and we've just set up an institute of law emergency and disaster here at the University of Canterbury as well to look into how law interacts with the disaster and what we can do to prepare for disasters and make sure the law is prepared Mm -hmm. to be ready for disasters that occur. The Red Cross in particular, the International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies Uh, the IFRC, has been a real driver behind the creation of disaster law. They have a disaster law unit. Uh, They have the disaster law response guidelines, which they've tried to get countries to sign up to. That's very much focused on response law. But they've also driven just just this idea you have to think about your legal frameworks around disasters. Um, So they have been instrumental in driving that. 
Have we signed up to those guidelines? Uh, yes, so the IDRL guidelines, yes. They, in fact, every country in the world has signed up to them because they accepted them. They're soft law, so which means that it's not a formal treaty requirement. They were um, adopted um, about the Red Cross's uh, conference abound in the mid-2010s, I think. Uh, but they're very much focused on response. And, of course, disaster law is more than just the response moment. You know, the, when you're sending in the ambulances and the police and, and all that emergency stuff, it's much more about the whole, what we call the disaster cycle, which is preparing for it, uh, reducing the impact of the hazard and the longer-term recovery as well as the response. And uh, the Red Cross has also been working a lot in those areas as well. So what kind of things should we be doing as a country in terms of legal preparedness then? Our mantra really in our in our lead institute is that the law should be prepared rather than, uh, as happened in Christchurch, as being reactionary. We'd like to be proactive and look at what we can do to ensure that the law is ready for a disaster. Now, it's really difficult, obviously. We cannot think about everything that's going to happen in the future. But there are certain things, as you say, uh, in terms of learnings from the Canterbury earthquake, which was one of the larger ones to affect a, a built-up area in a city, that we think that we can do and we can suggest around being prepared and getting the law ready to be able to react so that it's set up and ready to go should a disaster occur. Um, what's happened in the past is we've tend to be reactionary so that once the disaster hits then we say oh we need powers to do these things and then we tend to give our authorities very broad powers and that's often when uh, members of the public and other people tend to be concerned about the level of power that authority is um, wielding at that time. So we'd rather have it ready to go, set up and be ready for a disaster when it does occur. Do you think our preparedness is improving from where it was 10 years ago? Well, certainly since the Canterbury earthquakes, there's been a lot of learnings about uh, where there may have been gaps. And of course, often you don't realise there are gaps until the disaster occurs and you think, we, we need that power, it's not there. Or there's too much power, we don't want to be working in a, in a situation where the authorities have such broad powers to be able to do whatever they like without public consultation. So uh, an example would be, after the, the earthquakes, we realised that landlords and tenants in the cordoned area, the red zone of the city, uh, some of the buildings uh, were still able to be used, but landlords and tenants couldn't actually get back into them, so they were restricted from going back to their buildings, we call it inaccessibility, but what we realised there was that the law did not provide a solution for them. Uh, Their leases, which is their, their contract, did not provide what should happen should uh, their buildings be inaccessible. And the Property Law Act, so the statute that should have governed it, it didn't provide for it either because it hadn't been something that was foreseen. Nobody thought that the CBD of Christchurch would be shut down for two and a half years. And so uh, this sort of problem had not been foreseen and therefore not provided for. And so part of my research at that time was to look at what could a solution be for these parties. In some instances, tenants were paying for two buildings rent for a building that was inaccessible in the CBD and rent for a a new building they had to go to outside the CBD when they were setting up and continuing with their business. So it's problems like that that have been things that we haven't thought about but now can see and when we take a broader view of a disaster we're trying to look with Quake Corps uh, to try and foresee the problems that might arise and how can we deal with them within our legal framework. There's been some interesting examples this year, and it's not so much disasters, but the pandemic and what the government did declaring emergencies, for example. 
it should be said, I suppose, that you've already realised that we as social scientists and lawyers, we tend to see disasters as one thing. And then ha- we have different hazards, which have different types have different types of disaster. And of course, COVID-19, that's a, that's a hazard and it had a particular impact. So in terms of the, the emergency powers, uh, that's exactly a, a, a recurring theme that uh, Tony mentioned, that we have a what we call adaptive management. Uh, I have quite an extreme level of adaptive management here. And it dates back to the 80s, where um, we don't like putting in place large powers that the government can use in emergencies. Now, this is because it was abused in the 80s under the Muldoon government and back in the 50s with the um, watersiders dispute. So the Labour government in the uh, 80s removed them. The problem was they didn't put something in place, I think, that was better. They, they, we've got quite narrow emergency powers, and we discovered that in COVID. In the, in the response, the lockdown had to be instigated, and I don't think anybody would deny that, but the legal framework in which it was based upon is that, uh, not designed for the hazard it was faced with, and it wasn't flexible enough to cope, which led to, at best, some questionable uh, legal frameworks and at worst some possibly illegal as we've seen from the court decisions but also it's not just that illegality though because the whole point of having a system is you want to make the right decisions so you want to ensure that people are heard um, that the right people are being considered the right things are being thought about and you don't want to be making this up on the hoof and unfortunately of course in Christchurch we're well aware of that with the Sarah legislation that was written on the hoof I think it's fair to say that was not a success. So as as Tony says, one of the things we want to look at is looking at legal frameworks for the response. And certainly we would argue that we need to be ready to go. And COVID's another example. But I think I would also just point out that we tend to focus on the response. Everybody gets excited about response. And, and I understand that. I mean, that's the that's the that's when you get those heroes you're saving people. And it's a, it's a very active and exciting, maybe for the wrong reasons, time. But a lot of what we do is actually prior it's all about preparation uh, not just preparing for that response but preparation and ensuring that your hazard is reduced for example building law to ensure that those buildings don't collapse or that they they don't damage or that the economic damage is not there and a lot of stuff for, for want of a better word is a lot more boring <laughs> but to be honest if you get that right you don't have a disaster because if your society is resilient um, you get an emergency but then no disaster occurs because your society can cope with the hazard that you're presented with. So um, that's something we, we spend a lot of time thinking about, as well as the consequences of the disaster and the recovery, which in Christchurch has taken decades. It is still ticking along. Ticking along is a polite way to put it. It's city of car parks. Let's be positive. There's many aspects of the recovery which were great, but I think there's much we can learn because we are going to have another earthquake in New Zealand. It is going to hit an urban region. Uh, We've been particularly focused on Wellington, the scientists and the engineers who we work closely with. That's where their concern is. And uh, we would like Wellington learn from here. And one of the things we would learn is don't design that recovery framework on, on the day that the disaster strikes. Do you think the government, though, is getting better at thinking about things like that? Are we more prepared now than we were 10 years ago? The legislation that underpins our response is the Civil Defence and Emergency Management Act. And that is better than it was at the time of the Christchurch or the Canterbury earthquake sequence. So we've now got transition arrangements, which means that you can stop the the um, state of emergency, which is a politically difficult thing to keep on. Governments don't like 
keeping state of emergencies in place um, for a number of reasons, economic reasons. People don't want to invest in a country that's in a state of emergency, for example. But as we discovered, discovered in Christchurch, you do need powers to continue. So there are transition arrangements now in the Civil Defence and uh, the CDM Act. So that's good. And um, there are uh, improved powers around uh, building inspections and things like that. But I would say we're still, for my mind, a long way from having a, a robust disaster law framework uh, that we can utilise come that event. And we saw it in COVID because, again, we had to start rushing legislation. Um, we made some mistakes. Um, and I'll be quite frank, and I've, I've said this elsewhere, I think we got quite lucky around COVID. People did what they were told largely. We were blessed with some pretty good leadership. Sometimes you don't have that individual in that position and you're going to need to have a good legal framework to back it up. And um, had it been tested, my worry would be that things could be very different. And we've seen overseas where the failure to trust the authorities has led to some breaches and basically collapse of the, uh, of the restrictions that were put in place. People just don't accept it. And to answer the question, I suppose we've got better, but I would suggest we've got quite a long way to go. And governments in New Zealand have a lot of power and they like the fact that come the event, they can create frameworks that will fit the event. And that is the mantra. There's an acceptance of that, that we're going to do that. Now, going back to the Red Cross comment, um, the Red Cross has regularly said, you don't want to do that. You want to have legal frameworks in place so you know how they work. The last thing you want to do is make something up. And also, for the individuals on the ground, they've got enough to deal with without a new legal framework to cope with. You know, So, so keeping things as, as normal as possible or keeping things or having it a resilient structure in place already, I think, is something we want to do. And I'm not sure we've got the uh, powers that be quite accept that yet. Legal certainty makes for a more resilient community and a more resilient country. So our point is that we we feel that if the law is actually ready to go, people know what their rights are, how they can work with it, rather than, as John said, picking up a new legal framework at a time of disaster where there's so many other things going on. The other point I'd like to make is uh, just talking about learnings from disasters. We've got to remember that, particularly with the, thinking about the Canterbury earthquakes, it's a real challenge for people to actually think that a disaster is going to occur. Generally, ha- what's happened in New Zealand is that there's been a generational gap. So the challenge to get people to think we must get prepared for a disaster is, qu- is quite a, um, a hard one to deal with. You have a look now and think about even Auckland and Canterbury. Are we prepared for a disaster with our emergency kits? We probably were straight after the earthquake and then everyone gets a bit used to it and thinks, oh, it's not going to happen to us again. So I think also education and, and having the right law in place and all of those things brought together. It's not just a single answer. I think it's quite a complex answer to the to the issue of um, being prepared for a disaster. The Fakari White Island situation comes to mind. Absolutely. You know, we know that volcano erupts periodically. In fact, during my lifetime, I can remember a number of times that that was always the island that erupted. But, you know, we do think it's not going to happen to us. The Fakari example is interesting. We were actually doing work around volcanoes in Auckland. The, the risk there is actually is high, and Taranaki. But the interesting with the Fakari one, I think, is that it, it shows in, in many ways a failure of the system. The fact you need to lay charges against a number of individuals relating to it shows that they didn't, at least in the, in the eyes of WorkSafe, prepare correctly for the, the risk. Because the aim of the, the, the legislation and the legislative framework and WorkSafe's job is not to, of course, punish people after the effect, it's to stop it occurring. 
So immediately, I think we should be thinking much more broadly about not just about the volcanic issue, but and we've we've talked about this in earthquakes as well. That our health and safety legislation in New Zealand, uh, which is not just, of course, limited to disasters, is quite weak. Many other Western systems, you have private uh, negligence claims that can be taken against individuals for uh, personal injury, which can often be very high. And that focuses the mind to make sure that you don't harm people. We don't have that because of ACC. Now, I think ACC is a great thing, but it does mean you rely very heavily on the state to intervene and keep people safe. And again, that's something that I think in earthquakes we've been looking about that in terms of risk around buildings, something that people don't understand. And I think the Prima facie, though, the first, my first view I, uh, from looking at what's happened around Fakari is that, again, there is evidence that we need to be much more concerned about the structures in place to ensure pe- that risk is reduced. What have you got underway at the moment in terms of research? We've got a, a number of projects on the go, uh, looking at various aspects of disasters in, in both New Zealand and uh, internationally, uh, particularly in relation to, to Wellington and learning from the Christchurch quake. We've had a three-year project uh, looking at Wellington and the urban uh, resilience of Wellington, studying the effectiveness of the current legal regime around buildings. And the aim for that is to first look at the legal framework and see, will it deliver a resilient uh, Wellington? particularly the earthquake-prone building uh, framework you might have heard about. And it's clear that there are a number of gaps in that framework. It, it's very much a legal definition, the, the concept of earthquake-prone. And we think that's a little bit of a problem because your average person, they see a building as earthquake-prone, they will think, oh, that's a dangerous building. And the one next door, which is not earthquake-prone, they will think that is not a dangerous building in a seismic event. Uh, it's fair to say that that's not true, necessarily. It's a legal definition. And builders come avoid the definition due to their age or where they're built or how they're built and various other things, but may still have risks or, on the other hand, may not actually be that uh, risky. We've also looked at the impact of particular buildings in Wellington in a global sense to see, should we have an event like Kakoda, but much closer, what sort of impact we'll be looking at in the city? And I think the impact would be significant. As a result of that, we're also looking at other approaches to earthquake-prone buildings and whether we can learn from some overseas examples. And longer term, we're looking at a much bigger project as part of Quake Core to, to try and bring our whole approach to disasters together into a holistic frame rather than separating, for example, building frameworks from recovery frameworks to think about the whole thing. How do you build a, a system which encourages resilience uh, to a level that you can recover from? and that your response mechanisms can cope with, for example. Yes, and a couple of projects I've been working on too. I've been working with resilient organisations and we're looking at the interplay between the Health and Safety at Work Act, which came into force in 2015, uh, so subsequent to the earthquakes, uh, with the Building Act 2004 and the definitions and things of earthquake prone under that. So we're looking at, has this new Act, which is dealing with health and safety at work, how has that impacted on those who are in charge of workplaces? And uh, if the buildings are resilient to science events or not, how does that impact, I should say, on those that are in charge of, of workplace health and safety? And what we've sort of come up with is that there are gaps there and that there is a bit of uncertainty in the law. And what that leads to is perhaps buildings being closed when actually they are still compliant with the Building Act and may not necessarily need to be closed. On the other hand, it could be that there are buildings that are open where those who are in charge of the workplaces need to look closely at them to to make sure that they are not going to be liable under that health and safety legislation. 
in a seismic event. So it works both ways, and uh, I think everybody's still trying to come to terms with how those two acts actually interplay. Mm. The other aspect I've been looking at is the law on cordons, and uh, and prior to the amendment, which only came in last year, to the Building Act, which enables responsible people to designate areas where buildings can be managed in emergencies. Prior to that coming in, there was a bit of a gap between the emergency powers to deal with the management of buildings and cordons around those and just the general legislation, such as under Fire and Emergency New Zealand, which deals with specific incidents. So I'm now looking at how that has impacted on the on the law to do with cordons and cordoning. And of course, cordoning will be important in Wellington when uh, a large seismic event occurs there. Well, Christchurch learned that. Well, Christchurch learned that too. But uh, the thing for Wellington is that we cannot shut that city down like we did for Christchurch because it really only has two openings and it has so much um, government business head offices of of various international companies and we need to keep that city open um, in order for it to be resilient and so looking at how we cordon the the transport through the city, how we can keep it open is so important. The issue about Wellington as well is that Unless you get those legal frameworks right, the risk is you actually lead to what they call in social sciences an unsurvivable city. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody in Wellington dies, but the city as it's known, known today will cease to function because its raison d'etre will disappear. So, for example, businesses will move, maybe government will move, and there will be no reason for a Wellington that we know today. So Wellington will be a very different place. And it's something that's happened in a number of cities around the world. And obviously we, we think Wellingtonians don't want that to occur. And part of that is is the legal framework around it. And the other project I think that might be worth mentioning is one of the things that's come up with, it's been interesting in, in the Chinese concept of interesting, is that in, in, in the COVID world is the interaction between different hazards. And we've tended to think, I think, and I think all disaster scholars are a bit guilty of this, tend to think one hazard, you know, earthquake. And we've doing a, a project with the Red Cross looking at a number of Pacific Island states who actually often have pretty advanced uh, disaster law frameworks, I would say more advanced than, than New Zealand in many cases, but they are vulnerable. And, and one of the issues has been what happens when you get a health COVID response and an earthquake or, or another health response or something else. And it's quite interesting to see that the issue with, I think we've seen here, but we've yet to grasp, is we get too many cooks possibly spoiling the broth. You've got, you, you've got too many chiefs and not enough Indians. There's a lack of single leadership point. And so we've been looking at a number of these Pacific Island frameworks, um, both to understand their approaches and uh, possibly learn from them both to, between Pacific Island states and, and uh, to New Zealand. Fiji, for example, has been introducing a new act which will place a single agency at the head of all response. Whereas here, you'll notice in COVID it has been health, and the National Emergency Management Agency, NEMA, has been very much sidelined. Now, that's OK up to a point. But of course, the COVID response, although it's health at its core, is actually about managing people. And as we saw with the managed isolation, the Ministry felt it's not geared up to manage people. It's managing health. And an emergency management agency may actually be more suitable. Many thanks. John Hopkins and Tony Collins are experts in the field of disaster law at the University of Canterbury and they are both members of Quake Corps. This story is part of a series looking at what we've learned from major disasters and you can find links to other episodes at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. You can listen again to all our stories there, find photos and links and subscribe to our email newsletter at our webpage rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. 
Find us as a podcast and on Facebook and Twitter where we are RNZ Science. Many thanks for your company. I'm Alison Balance. Catch you next time. Namihi. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.